this is Eric Sinrod from Dwayne Morris in San Francisco on a very momentous occasion for this Tech Law 10. This is our century mark, our 100th broadcast. Jonathan, please introduce yourself and tell us who our guest star is today. Thanks very much, Eric, and thank you for joining us for, uh, for the 100 not out, as we say in, in cricketing terms. And we have got a cricketing fan with us. Uh, I am very pleased to introduce, and thanks ever so much, John, for doing this, uh, the chairman of our firm, uh, John Sirocco, who's volunteered to be our very first guest on Tech Law 10. John. Well, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Jonathan. I, I think you do me a great honor by including me in this 100th uh, show. I'm pleased you've made it to the century mark, and hopefully my appearance today won't won't lead to uh, your demise. Hopefully you can at least get to a, a 101 or a 102, but I'm far from a tech law expert, but uh, very happy to be on the show to, uh, as I always do, listen and learn. Thanks well, very good. much. Well, we, we love having you. We, what we were thinking of doing is doing a little bit of a retrospective look back at some of uh, the uh, podcasts we've done so far. Jonathan and I have each picked five representative examples of ones we might just want to touch on briefly uh, and also get John's thoughts as well. Um, so why don't we, we kick it off. Um, I'll, I suppose I'll pick one that actually garnered a lot of attention. I, I did a podcast with Jonathan, and I was talking about how I went from being a Crackberry addict to an iPhone junkie. And I explained that I was one of the, it seemed like one of the last lawyers to, to go the way uh, into the iPhone from the BlackBerry, and the, the primary reason was I was really uh, very used to using the tactile keyboard on the BlackBerry. I could type on a BlackBerry about as fast as I could on a computer keyboard, and going to the touch screen for the iPhone was quite an adjustment for me. Uh, but I did talk about, and Jonathan I think weighed in as well, about how I really become very fond of the iPhone. There's so many features that are incredible, including you know the voice recognition, Siri, and all the different apps, and now you basically can't find me without myself glued to my iPhone. I, I thought that was a good one, Eric, and that was probably the one where we had the most engagement over LinkedIn. Remember, we did a little vote, and a couple of people told us that we were both Luddites, uh, you for your addiction to the, to the jobs technology and mine for uh, my continued use of BlackBerry. Uh, and uh, a number of people on LinkedIn made votes in favor of their favorite uh, new technology, which was going to, quote, uh, hit uh, iPhone out of the park. Um, so I like that one. And I suppose a connected one, actually, John, maybe you could uh, comment on this. I think the one that was the most popular in terms of, uh, of people downloading was the one where we talked about how technology had changed in the last decade and how people's use of technology or lawyers use of technology had changed and, and it's only it, it seems remarkable doesn't it but even as we hit you know 2000 people were still I guess fax was still the predominant method of communication between lawyers and maybe five years before then it had still been uh, letter and, and I know how that's changed in my sort of 20 something years of legal practice and John, if I may, I think you've been practicing even longer than 20 years. So have things changed a lot since you started as well? Thank you. I, uh, for better or for worse, I have the perspective of uh, essentially 35 years of legal practice. 
And when I started uh, right out of law school, uh, my secretary, we didn't call them legal assistants then, but my secretary was equipped with a very technologically advanced piece of office equipment called an IBM Selectric typewriter. There was her IBM Selectric typewriter. There was a Xerox machine down the hall. And I could assure you in those days, the term cutting and pasting meant real cutting and real pasting. And one of the things that marked a skillful associate was the associate who, by careful arts and crafts work, could actually cut and paste and save portions of a brief to prevent the entire brief from having to be rewritten. A few years later, my secretary got a typewriter that had a memory feature to it, but it was probably uh, not until the sometime in the 1980s when uh, most secretaries now called legal assistants were doing at their desks something that we would identify today as word processing. So it's been a uh, tremendous change. Uh, if you wanted to get something to someone very quickly, uh, that was uh, FedEx or other overnight services. Uh, faxing just came into vogue, I would say, in the mid-'80s. And of course, uh, all electronic communication was uh, a decade or more away. Very good points. In fact, you know, I entered the scene 29 years ago out of law school, and faxing was just becoming the big thing. And I would get paged from the library in my law firm to tell me a fax had arrived. And that was a big deal. If you had a fax, it, it, was, it was assumed there was some sort of an emergency. I think this segues nicely, though, into you know, how things have changed technologically, because we had one podcast, Jonathan, recall, where we talked about e-discovery. And yeah. the, the, thought, the thought was at one point that electronic discovery would make litigation so much more streamlined and efficient and cost-effective. But as we talked about, in some ways, e-discovery now is the tail wagging the dog in terms of litigation expense. And sometimes cases will now resolve early on simply because the parties don't want to go through the Herculean and phenomenally expensive endeavor called e-discovery. Any thoughts you two have you want to share right now on that briefly before we go to the next topic? Well, as a litigator, I would make the observation that almost anything that becomes a new development in practice uh, is turned into a weapon very quickly. So you're, you've, you've said it very well. This, this was supposedly something that would make life easier. It didn't take very long for good litigators to understand that they had in the shape of this a new weapon. And uh, since it was uh, very, very difficult uh, to get your arms completely wrapped around what your e-discovery obligations were, the failure to discharge those obligations completely became yet just another battlefront in the litigation. I think that's very interesting. I mean, I think in, from a European point of view, obviously where you know relative amateurs as far as e-discovery is concerned, and, and that's probably a good thing uh, in that we've seen almost the social experiment of e-discovery in the U.S. and how that's not gone the way it was planned, and we haven't followed in much of Europe. Obviously, some parts of Europe don't have discovery at all, and we've talked about this on the podcast, other parts of Europe 
actually have data blocking statutes which prohibit uh, certain classes of documents going into the U.S. for the purposes of e-discovery. And that, I think, in, in my practice certainly has been a, a real developing trend. So how does the U.S.'s quest for information match with Europe's resistance to provide that information in, in litigation? I guess on the technology point generally, and e-discovery, probably there are parallels with this, you know, we talked about the changing technology. I think I read somewhere that the average iPhone now has more uh, computing capacity than NASA did in 1969. Of course, NASA uh, used that technology to put another Armstrong on the moon, whereas, <laughs> whereas generally speaking with an iPhone, we use the technology to play Angry Birds. So there's a real contrast, I think, between the power of technology, but also how we use it. I guess that segues into something else, uh, Eric and John, the, the question of super injunctions. And the more general point, really, one of the emerging trends that we've seen in the 100 podcasts that we've had is the failure, really, of some lawyers to understand technology and understand that the world has changed. So super injunctions would be one area um, these, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, are injunctions which have been granted in the UK. And they're a super injunction because not only does the injunction prohibit people talking about a given story, but it also prohibits anybody talking about the, in the fact that an injunction has been granted to prohibit people talking about the story. And it's confession time. This is the only podcast I think Eric that we've ever had to have edited and you and I know the reason and it was entirely my fault why it had to be edited that these are injunctions that you're not allowed to talk about and we accidentally did um, but I guess my perception of this is it's almost wrapped up with the same the pace of technology change is great it's almost like King Canute isn't it these type of injunctions that people are trying to use old school litigation tactics of silencing people and does that really work on social media and I'd be interested in in your perspectives on that John and Eric well I think there's a real you know live issue there and uh, this this touches on yet another podcast we dealt with and that is you know how much can people what can people do in private without their identity being known and or not on the internet uh, you recall once upon a time there was the cartoon that says, you know, on the Internet nobody knows you're a dog, and it shows a picture mm. of a dog at a keyboard and a, and a monitor you know, typing away. Um, and so, you know, for example, you, you bring up this subject of, you know, injunctions and whether that can even be, you know, known or not. And then the question is, can people speak freely on the Internet without having their identities revealed? And they're actually in our country there, there is a right to communicate, uh, a First Amendment right to communicate freely and anonymously on the Internet, but it only goes so far, and we talked about that, and that is if you mm. say something on the Internet uh, that uh, is wrong and causes harm, then there's a defamation cause of action, and there can be litigation that leads to the person who posted that information having their identity unmasked, but there, there's a balancing test involved in terms of the, 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 the public interest in finding out uh, who that person is and, and causing um, to sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, cause redress for the harm 
delivered versus mm-hmm. the right to free speech and privacy. And so with both of us having now talked, let's turn it over to John for his thoughts. Well, one certainly sees quite a dichotomy in, in the behavioral aspects of this, uh, don't you? You, you? you have a medium which can reach uh, millions of people uh, simul- uh, simultaneously and instantaneously, and yet it tends to bring out the most uh, impulsive parts of people in terms of their communications. Uh, you would think that a medium that is that powerful can reach that many people. People would be quite wary of it. It would be like getting behind the wheel of a quite powerful car. Uh, a rational instinct would be I'm, I'm now sitting behind the wheel of a car that's extraordinarily powerful. I must drive it with great care. But in fact, when people start typing on their keyboards and start uh, all that social networking, uh, they tend to throw caution to the wind and type things that they would not say. I think that's, a, I think that's an excellent point, and I think that sort of leads me into, I guess, the podcast. If, you're ask, if you were to ask me the podcast I think I'm proudest of of all, um, it was a podcast that we did that was tied into a campaign, you'll remember, Eric, called Accidental Outlaw with a not-for-profit uh, organization called Know the Net, um, that, uh, we, we did our podcast as part of a wider campaign, which involved uh, some of the mainstream media covering it, uh, the print, print media, the BBC. I'm pleased to say that I'm, I'm told that well over 7,000, mostly teenagers, have sat the test that we talked about there, Eric, on uh, exactly as John describes almost. You've got a powerful car, you need to know how to drive it. The accidental outlaw test, those of you who listened into that one will remember, is almost like that, like a driver's test uh, for social media use. The test is still there at www.bit.ly slash out, or if you just type know the net into your usual browser. And that's been particularly relevant, I think, because of this anonymous site we've had uh, based in Latvia called AskFM, which has led to a lot of horrible bullying uh, allegations from the police this morning that it's led to an increase in gang warfare. And it is exactly that point that not only do we have powerful tools available on the Internet, but we also need to pour quite a bit of effort into education. And I'm personally very, very proud and humbled that we've, um, you know, that we've helped reduce the risks for 7,000 or, or maybe more people in a vulnerable position on the Internet. Yes, Eric, yeah. it's back to you, I think. Thank you, yes, and that one um, reminds me of the one we did on how potentially uh, companies can become civilly liable for the criminal conduct of others. Normally we think of you know, cybercrime and you know, you know, nobody would really want to go there, only the criminals. But we talked about uh, DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service attacks, and what happens if those get routed through what we call innocent zombie sites that bring back down yet a thir- another third-party site? Um, you know, do, does a company that doesn't take adequate security members, security measures, excuse me, to uh, prevent you know intrusions and attacks like that, have responsibility not only to it, itself and its own shareholders and customers, but potentially under traditional negligence uh, principles? to others if there's foreseeability and causation. And uh, I thought that was an interesting podcast. Um, 
And, you know, mm-hmm. earlier when you talked about you know, the iPhone being uh, perhaps more powerful than all of NASA's capability back in 1969, you know, it makes me think now that I've uh, moved from my BlackBerry to my iPhone, Jonathan, since you're an Armstrong, perhaps I can send you to the moon. <laughs> we can broadcast, we broadcast from many different places. Now we can do it from yet a different, uh, not even from Earth. But actually, the reason I bring that up is because we have, not only we dealt with uh, serious topics, but we've also had some fun along the way. And perhaps our funniest uh, podcast that we, we called Putting Skin in the Game in that particular app. And maybe you could tell, maybe you could tell John about it, and he might have some funny Internet stories, too. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. I mean, uh, can I just pause in passing to say, you know, obviously we, we're really grateful for all the suggestions that people have sent to us. I was just looking on my own social media stats um, this afternoon, and I saw that we've had some sort of interaction from people in 41 countries, would you believe? Um, it's not quite from A to Z or A to Z, as you would say, but it is from Australia to Vietnam, so we've almost spanned the whole alphabet. And uh, I, I find it uh, fantastic that people have, have listened from so many countries. So probably the most bizarre they've listened to, I think, is this um, U.S. uh, regulatory prosecution of a couple of apps, the worst of which was an iPhone app that, believe it or not, said it could cure acne. How? Well, you downloaded the iPhone app, which changed the color of your iPhone screen at predetermined sequences, and you were meant to rub that uh, your phone screen over your uh, skin for a given number of, um, of minutes a day, and lo and, lo and behold, your acne would be cured. Uh, have you ever heard anything so, uh, so stupid as that, John? Uh, no. Uh, I, 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 I have to say that's a good one. And uh, in my own personal uh, handheld device use, I'm someone who is now carrying, you might be interested to hear this, uh, Eric and Jonathan, I'm carrying both a, uh, a BlackBerry and an iPhone. Uh, I'm using the uh, BlackBerry for heavy-duty uh, typing and email, essentially the extension into my hand of my um, uh, office computer, and I'm using my uh, iPhone as a phone and as a way to get access to the Internet and to take advantage of those limited number of apps, none of them having to do with acne, I might add, mm-hmm. that limited number of apps that I've been able to master to, uh, to this point. So I am, uh, I am uh, ambidextrous if you will. I've got a BlackBerry in one hand, I've got an iPhone in the other. Well, you probably probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that the FTC cracked down on the false Internet claims relating to that particular acne app, because in fact, surprise, surprise, that app does not cure acne, no matter how long you put it up to your face. So winding winding along here, Jonathan, why don't you tell us one more that you found interesting relating to uh, Murdoch? And then, and then I'll uh, close with one last uh, podcast I want to reminisce about. Yeah, I think the Murdoch one is definitely a story that's uh, still evolving. And I guess one of the attractions of us speaking, you know, most every week is we've been able to follow stories like that from their birth to hopefully their eventual evolution. I suspect that we can talk less about the 
Murdoch litigation now than we could when we started, given that a number of individuals have been charged and a related in, uh, investigation charged more people just in the last week or so. But it's been quite interesting how technology and the, mis the alleged misuse of technology has permeated uh, society. You know, it's been headline news in the UK probably for about 18 months, two years now. And as I say, we've got people in the prison service, in the police, uh, as well as journalists who are facing criminal charges because of their misuse of, of technology. And yet, and, and yet it seems to me that, that some of that industry just isn't learning. And I've seen some shocking examples this week of people still using technology for, uh, for nefarious purposes. So a more serious topic, Eric, but one where I think we've had the privilege of being able to almost document the story as it's unfolded through its many different guises. Yeah, and I thought your insights in that particular area were very insightful and extremely helpful and uh, very current. The last podcast I'd like to touch on uh, might be a little counterintuitive considering you know, who's speaking right now, but this is the podcast where Jonathan and I talked about how it's important at least once in a while to unplug from information technology overload. I mean, we all have our various devices. John, you have your two handhelds. Some of us have iPads. We have our computers. You know, we're basically on, or at least we have the potential to be on 24-7. Uh, and we pointed out that as human beings, and I hope the chairman of our firm can understand this as well, that to be productive and efficient, uh, we need to you know, maximize our potential. And sometimes that potential is best maximized when we just have at least a brief bit of downtime, uh, smell the roses, breathe a little bit, and, and then recharge ourselves uh, and then get back into the information technology world so we don't suffer burnout. And that particular podcast actually you know, gained quite a bit of traction and resonated with people. It's an interesting and difficult uh, issue. Our, um, you know, uh, a, a number of years ago when I first started carrying any handheld device, I uh, determined that it uh, didn't get reception in a part of my home state of Pennsylvania where my wife and I have a uh, vacation house in the mountains. And uh, that was good news and bad news. It was good news in the sense that I wasn't constantly looking at my BlackBerry, but bad news in the sense that it necessitated about a 15-mile drive every day to drive the device into reception range. Uh, years later, uh, the, one of the carriers built a new cell tower, and lo and behold, I started to get reception in our vacation home. And yes, you can predict what I'm going to say, that was good news and bad news. I didn't have to drive 15 miles twice a day. That was the good news. But of course, the bad news, you obviously know what that was. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, uh, many of us have enjoyed going on business or, or even personal plane flights because for the longest time, you know, nobody could find you on the plane. Of course, that's now changing. You know, we, you know where can we have a little bit of repose? Uh, but we talked about strategies for that. You know, I explained how I was one of these people who, unfortunately, constantly on vacation was checking my handheld device, and I've learned now, even on vacation, maybe I just get up an hour before the family and do what I need to do mm -hmm. and then really try to put it away and, and not look at it 
so as to stay current, but not to have it interfere and intrude too much. I'll tell you an interesting experience I had with that, Eric and Jonathan. I just came back from our firm's Singapore office, and of course, from a time standpoint, Singapore is 12 hours ahead of the east coast of the United States. It really meant waking up every day to uh, a full day of yesterday's emails, and I could start each day in Singapore if I got up a couple hours early by reading, clearing, and responding to every email, and then go through the entire day in Singapore essentially getting no emails. That was quite a nice feeling. <laughs> I have the pleasure right now of dealing with a client in Taiwan and one in Europe, so you can imagine what that means. Emails come round the clock, so it requires yeah. discipline. But Jonathan, why don't you weigh in on this one, and then we'll uh, we'll do our conclusion. No, I, I think they're uh, very valid comments. I like the uh, the solution. The best solution I've heard is you've got to treat your device a little bit like a dog. So it's sort of okay that it sort of sits in the lounge with you whilst you watch TV or whatever. But when it's time to go to bed, the dog has to go to bed too. Um, so, uh, so that's my uh, the best, best strategy I've heard for at least switching off at night. I'll okay. tell you what I would like to do if, uh, b- before we close. Um, I'd like to thank, um, obviously Eric and I have done 100 podcasts now, but we've also had help behind the scenes uh, putting the um, music on every now and then and uploading it to uh, iTunes from um, Sean and Hallie and Tom in particular, who've, who've worked um, tirelessly on these podcasts. So I'd just like to sort of publicly thank them for their efforts as well. And that's probably about all I've got to say, Eric. So um, over to you sure. again. Uh, I, I, sh- I share your thanks. We have a crack team here at Dwayne Morris. It's a, a wonderful law firm. I've, I've been here now for the better part of my career, and uh, this, these podcasts have been a delight with you, Jonathan. We've, we've hit 100, but we have many more to go. The content remains fresh. We're both very interested. We very much thank the leadership of our firm, especially John, for uh, supporting us in this endeavor. Uh, so all that remains, as we say, is to, to thank you, as Jonathan would point out, ever so much. Uh, as you know, we'll, we'll keep these hits coming. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric Sinrod in San Francisco, EJ Sinrod at DwayneMorris.com. John, if you want to make a final comment, and then, Jonathan, you can do the final bring it home as always. Uh, Jonathan and Eric, thanks for uh, including me. Congratulations on the uh, 100th. I trust there will be 101st. But if not, uh, I know the blame will rest fairly and squarely with me. But hopefully, uh, hopefully it won't come to that. And again, thank you for uh, uh, doing these most interesting podcasts. They've been terrific. And thank you for bringing me aboard for the 100th. Uh, perhaps uh, we'll talk about me being on the 200th as well. That would be excellent. And thanks, uh, John, for your time today. And, and and as Eric says, thanks for your support from the very, from the very start of this project when you gave us the uh, latitude to do it. And all that remains is to thank, uh, in a sort of slightly cheesy way, thank you, the listeners, for joining us for 100 or at least a percentage of them. It has been a pleasure doing them. We've really appreciated 
the feedback that you've given us uh, and the suggestions that you've made for topics. Please do keep them coming as well. I'm JP Armstrong at DwayneMorris.com. As Eric says, you'll find us in all the usual social media places. All that remains is to thank you again for listening. And I think I've been told by Tom, I have to say, bring on the horn. 100 days, 100 nights, and no 